Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you to run, and we build it from scratch. This season, we're building for the Fallout role-playing game, so if you're interested in playing along but don't yet have a book, you can either pick up a copy at your local game or bookshop, or you can get it online at modifius.net. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Last week, we had our group head back to the Jessup Chemicals facility on Laclede's Landing to see if they could find information on the elusive Jackson Denman, but they came up empty-handed and almost got themselves blown up. So your group almost got blown up, right? I mean, if they actually got blown up, I, I apologize. I do. You don't have to send me the hate. Kidding. Nobody sent me hate. Now, as I said last go-around, there were three options for where the group would go. While I realize the hospital is probably the choice that's the most appealing to your group, and probably mine too if I'm being honest, I still want to hit the Jessup's Chemicals option at the Dome. When the group decides to hit up the Dome depends on the time of day it is when they're done with the landing location. One benefit they do have is the Dome is also a somewhat self-contained community, albeit one semi-controlled by super mutants. The group would have heard about the super mutants, most likely, but they've also heard that they're not quite as feral and aggressive as the ones you've run into most everywhere else. Now, that might be a rumor, but they've also heard that with the variety of folks who live in the dome, the super mutants would have to be less aggressive or else there wouldn't be anybody else there. To be honest, other than what I've already laid out, plus the information that there's a Jessup Chemicals lab there, the group doesn't really know anything about what's actually inside the dome. So this is going to be a first for them. If they're heading straight there from the landing, they can be there in about five minutes. Now, the dome in our time looks like pretty much every other dome you've seen, if you're a sports fan. But for our purposes, especially with the style of Fallout, we're going to go with a slightly different look. And I'll try to get Gabe to post a picture of it on the website as soon as possible if you're interested. I will note that Gabe has had a pretty busy week, so it might be a wee bit before he gets it up there. So let's just be patient, please. The highway overpass in the area has been picked over to the point that there's not much left there, and what is there is fairly easy to walk over or around. The group also notes that some of the roof of the dome was destroyed, and some sort of metal and wood roofing has been used to repair the holes. The main entrance, and the only entrance from the street in our time, faces the highway, so we'll leave it in that spot for our game, especially since it works in the favor of our group. As they make their way up to the entrance, they'll notice two huge super mutants on either side of the doors. They're armed with huge boards, which one could assume they've prepared to use on those who might have malice in their minds. There's also an armed and armored human standing between them, and he converses with them, though not in long sentences or with big words. There's a short line of folks trying to get in, and the human guard checks them as they head in. When the group is next in line, the group in front of them attempts to bum-rush the doors. That's when the super mutants spring into action. Now, the group can decide to intervene if they want to, but they'll have heard the group ahead of them trash-talking the guards and threatening to pull weapons before they ultimately ignored the guards' questions and tried to rush the door. If the group wants to get involved, the stats for Super Mutants are on page 366 and we'll use them as is. For the Human Guard, we'll use the stats for a Mercenary, and those are on page 392. However, if the group gets involved, they're going to have serious issues getting into the Dome, and we'll get into that momentarily. 
If they decide to let the group get what they've got coming, they'll only have to wait a few minutes, after which the human guard comes back to them and inquires about their reasons for entering the dome. The smart answer would be to say they're there to check the shops. The dumb answer would be to say they're going in to see Jessup Chemicals. That answer will tick off all three guards and lead to another conflict. Anything in the middle will still get them into the dome, but the human guard will give them a suspicious look as they head in. He's not going to actually do anything, but it's apparent he doesn't trust them. So once they get inside, they find a city that makes Diamond Pass look quaint. That being said, the buildings are packed tight, as there's barely enough space to move through more than single file, and the buildings tend to rise up at least five stories, though they can see some going higher. Now, I'm not going to get into a ton of details on what's here, but if your group wants to check out the shopping, let's put a couple different vendors in there and have item two rarity and below items available. I think it would be safe to have the weapons, armor, ammo merchants marking their prices up uh, 40% over book value, and we've laid out how to handle those negotiations on more than one occasion. Use 15 as the number for the shopkeepers. Use any other kind of merchants that you want, but again, I think we should keep the rarity levels at two or less. We're not quite yet at the point where we want some of those big guns out there. Don't worry, though. We'll get to those eventually. Now, the group is here specifically to look for the Jessup's Chemicals location, so they'll be doing their best to find it. They could start asking about it, or you could have them make a perception check with a difficulty of one to notice the huge structure built into the far side of the dome. Think of it as a triple-stacked luxury box by today's standards. The major difference is that instead of it being open to the field, it's closed in with walls. The way they figure out it's Jessup is by the colors the building is painted in. They're the colors they've seen the Jessup logo painted in. I didn't detail this before because, honestly, I hadn't considered it. So if you did a color scheme, use it here. If you didn't, I'm thinking about, I don't know, aqua and white with black outlines and bordering. So the paint is the giveaway. They just have to figure out how to get there. Let's take a minute, if we can, to discuss how luxury box access works in our time. Granted, I've never had the good fortune to actually sit in one of these for a game, but since I usually get the worst seats in the building, I've had to walk past them. That makes me uh, a quasi-expert on how to get to the boxes, I suppose. And I'll note, this is how it works in most of the stadiums in the United States. Access to these kinds of boxes in the rest of the world is probably different, so do it how it's done where you watch football. And for our U.S. listeners, I'm using football in this instance in the non-U.S. term, which we refer to in the U.S. as soccer. The way we do it now is to head away from the field area into the concourse, then try to find stairs or escalators to make our way up to luxury box level. So that's basically what the group has to do. The problem with that is that the buildings have been built all the way out to the walls, which means that looking for a way to get to the concourse is going to be pretty difficult. I think this is a good spot for an endurance plus survival check, difficulty two. I would argue this is the role necessary because they're trying to find some sort of doorway or entrance or something that would lead them off the floor and away from the buildings here. With a success, they find a small closet looking door in a slight alleyway between two buildings on the northern section of the wall. It seems to be locked tight and they can lockpick it. That's perception plus lockpick difficulty three. However, once they get it unlocked, it still won't open. Feels like the door is stuck or somehow secured. Strength plus athletics, difficulty three to basically yank it off the frame, if they so choose. There's not really a quiet way to do it, so if they don't want to pull it off the frame, they'll have to find another door. We can go back to the endurance plus survival check, difficulty of two, 
to find another door on the western wall, which puts it below the box they need to get to. Perception plus lockpick, difficulty of four to get that unlocked, and it'll open once they get it. With two possibilities for getting to the concourse, we'll handle both until we get them combined at the same point, and then we'll move on. Let's start with the first door. Getting through the doorway, they find themselves in the rubble and wreckage of the concourse. They realize they can't get to the next level from here, but they do see a path through the concourse that's been cleared out. So as they make their way through the wreckage, they run into small groups of people who are apparently living out here. They're skittish and tend to run away from the group. There's no role-playing here because whomever they run into is not going to stick around long enough to talk. Or that's how I'm going to play it anyway. If you want to run it different, like I always say, feel free to do so. It's going to take the group a bit of time, but they eventually run into the only working stairs to the next level, and it's actually a non-functional escalator. Now we'll pause here to get the other option to this point. When that group gets the door unlocked and goes through, they realize almost immediately that the only option they have is to go right as the left is blocked with large chunks of metal and concrete. They've only got to walk a few hundred feet and they reach the stairs. Regardless of how they get here, it's time to head up. This is where it starts to get interesting as they quickly notice four-man patrols of pairs of two super mutants with two mercenaries. If they take the time to study, they'll realize there are four patrols and each have the same mix. If they want to try to time out the patrol gaps, they can either make an intelligence plus science check or an endurance plus survival check, and we can justify either of those with pretty good reasons. Set the difficulty at three. For the record, they figure out there's about a two and a half minute gap between one patrol turning its back to head off and the next patrol getting close enough to notice anything. So that means there's probably going to be some sneaking going on, unless the group wants to fight 16 individuals armed to the teeth in two waves. Agility plus sneak checks are the roll with difficulty at two, and that's thanks to the noise coming from the inhabitants of the dome itself. However, I'd argue that if a character has a better luck score than agility, they could substitute luck with no luck point needing to be spent. I mean, considering the opposition, if they fail, we can afford to be nice here. The group's going to want to know where they're sneaking to, and that's the underside of the box they need to get into. There's just enough space for the characters to sort of lean over and be under there. Any Mr. Handy, Mr. Gutsy characters are going to have a tough time with that, but if they can smooth talk the guards, they're not going to be bothered. That would be Charisma plus Speech Difficulty 3. Failure means they'll be asked to follow the guards to where they're supposed to be, which ironically enough is the inside of the Jessup's chemical box. Don't let them get off easy, though. Make them nervous about where exactly they're going or what exactly is going to happen to them. You could have the guards discuss something about damaging or destroying the robots, but they'll ultimately just make them go into the box with the instructions to report to your inspector. For the group that's hiding, they know what the timing looks like for guard patrols, which means they've got two and a half minutes to get out from under the box, around the corner, and into the box itself. They can do that pretty easily, but crank up the tension a bit to give them the impression that either they can't do it or they're going to just make it. The door's unlocked, and they don't run into any resistance when they get inside. However, it becomes apparent rather quickly why that's the case. The entire building is absolutely trashed. The entryway has broken vials and papers all over it. As they make their way from room to room, they note that computer terminals have been smashed. Anything that appears to be of any value has been burned or destroyed. Then they see the bodies. About a dozen men, most in lab coats, lie dead. Some have laser burns, while others obviously took a lot of bullets. 
However, one body draws their attention. It seems to be a little too human, too perfect, too unblemished. We'll go with intelligence plus science if they're checking the body, and it's a difficulty of three. After much checking, they'll notice a hole at the base of the skull, but it's what they see inside the hole that gets them. There's a metal skull in there. Needless to say, the group has come across a synth strider, and the stats for those are on page 375. This one's most definitely dead, so they don't have to worry about fighting it. What they do have to wonder is what group came in here with synths to ransack the place. Now, give them time to search for things. Have them make the intelligence plus science checks and the endurance plus survival checks. Don't worry about difficulty because they're not going to find anything of value. Okay, check that. It's not exactly true, but the rolls are going to give them some more action points for what's coming down the line. They will find precisely one thing, and you decide which character doing a search finds it. In the midst of all the rubble, they find a maker's plate from a weapon. The plate's two and a half inches, and it's oval. The maker's name is plain as day, Garson Tactical. Group's going to wonder two things. What does this mean, and is it a setup? Let them discuss it for a few minutes. We want the group to feel a bit uncomfortable, but we also don't want them to feel like they're being led along. Once they've had their talk, they should really consider getting out of there. And unfortunately for them, it doesn't really matter whether they sneak out or not because they've got a welcoming party waiting for them when they get out the door. In fact, the party pretty much starts as soon as the last member of the group gets out the door. They are almost immediately surrounded by enough men to equal three more than the total number of group members. These are mercenaries. Stats are on page 392. They've all got their guns at the ready, but they're not pointing them at the group just yet. One of the men lowers the bandana covering the lower half of his face and speaks to the group. It would appear that you've gotten involved in things that don't concern you. I'd strongly advise you to walk away and drop whatever it is you think you're going to investigate. It's in your best interests in the long run. One member of the PC's group can attempt to speak with this individual. Charisma plus speech, difficulty three. If they succeed, they can ask a few questions, as they'll have convinced the mercs, for a moment anyway, that the group would rather talk instead of fight. I'm not 100% sure what your group is going to ask. And if I'm honest, I don't know what my group's going to ask either. So what we'll do is cover what the merc will be willing to say, and you can work it out in whatever way works best for you. He won't say who he's working for. He'll note that handing out that kind of information is bad for business. And that's not something he can be talked into doing. If the PC attempts to do so, they'll be warned before a merc just decides to shoot him, in which case the fight is on. He will neither confirm nor deny responsibility for what happened inside the Jessup building. He won't admit whether or not he and his group were in there, but if the PC says something about a synth, his tone will change to slightly angry and he'll respond, we don't work with synths, I can assure you of that. If they ask who might be interested in the information contained within, he'll shrug. There's a couple of brothers working a few blocks south of here that seem to be collecting stuff recently. Victor over in Diamond Pass likes to buy information. An Irish dude based out of the Opera House likes to deal in information. Heck, high intelligence hoards knowledge like some folks hoard caps. It's pretty much all they're going to get out of this group of mercenaries. So long as the group minds their P's and Q's, there won't be a fight. Unless the PCs want to fight. I mean, if they want to fight, let them have it. They can then scavenge whatever's left behind. Otherwise, they can get back out of the dome the same way they came in, but now they have an issue. And that's how to get the information they were trying to get here. As usual, they've got their usual information sources and they can hit them up in turn. 
Of course, when the group needs to get information on things that might be a bit shady, there are two obvious choices. Corinth and Igmon or Victor. Well, Corinth and Igmon are unavailable. And in fact, nobody in the information world has seen or heard from them in several days, and that's pretty unusual. Victor will see them, especially since they've done good business with him in the past. As is standard, Bruno meets him at the door, escorts him back to Victor's office, has them wait a moment, and then brings him in to meet him. Victor seems to be concerned about something when they enter, but inquires about the reason for their visit first. We're going to assume they lay out what they ran into at the dome, and while he's uncertain about who would benefit from ripping off Jessup chemicals, he can only think of a small handful of people with enough firepower and cunning to pull something like that off. One of the names draws the group's immediate interest, Barnabas O'Reilly. You remember good old Barnabas. He's the dude they stole the heirloom from by breaking into the old opera house. While Victor doesn't know for sure which one of the heavy hitters is responsible, he lets the group know he will have his sources dig in to find out and get the answers. And surprisingly for the group, he tells them it's not going to cost him anything. However, he does have a favor to ask, and he's willing to pay caps for it. Two associates of mine have come up missing, and I have reason to believe someone they have crossed swords with has something to do with it. It's not about the business they've done for me. Trust me. I have dozens of information sources out there. He gets almost misty-eyed, he continues on. The three of us came to St. Louis together years ago. We ran our first jobs together. We fought together. The idea was that we would build this business together. They got cold feet at the last minute and decided it was too much heat. They backed out, but have worked with me whenever it would benefit both of us. So I get worried when I do not hear from them for several days. In the irony of ironies, though... Jim's going to see through this in my group. The two men Victor is looking for are Corinth and Igmon, which the group will realize is the reason Victor knew about the job they pulled at the opera house. If they point this out, Victor will smile and shrug. It was in my best interest to keep our connection a secret. Besides, it gave you the opportunity to earn caps from all of us. He offers 100 caps per group member if they're willing to help him out, and the information he can dig up on the dome job is a bonus. If they agree, he gets into specifics. If they decline, he admits he understands, but he also states he's a bit disappointed as he believes they are the group best designed to do this job. The specifics are this. Corinth and Igmon were working on a deal for Victor as the middleman between himself and Garson Tactical. He notes that, what you think you know about Garson Tactical is not the actual truth. They appear to be a company selling large guns and providing protection, but they also handle assassinations for those with the caps to pay. When you made the delivery to my sister, you allowed her to get out of the assignment I sent her on to dig up some details about the nature of their business. But we found out once the office was blown up that what we thought was their main base of operations was very far from it. Pours himself a shot of vodka and offers some to the rest of the group. He gives a slight raise of his glass and a nod of salute before slamming it down and continues. I tasked Corinth and Igmon with digging into the background of Garson to figure out where their actual headquarters are. So I have some unfinished business with them. I told them to use a group they could trust to handle the heavy lifting. But they insisted on using a group of dregs and addicts because they would work cheap. The group disappeared, then Corinth and Igmon did as well. So, I suppose you get what you pay for. 
He doesn't have a lot of details to work with, but he does believe strongly that the group the boys hired to do the digging sold out Corinth and Igmon to someone within Garson. So that's where he would suggest the group begins. And fortunately, his sister managed to dig up one of the group members, Darren Olchesny. He's a jet addict and tends to hang out with other jets in the ruins of the old St. Louis University. This is where we need to step outside of our build to provide a bit of history, since the characters would know this, but the players wouldn't. And we need to start with the reality of the location today. St. Louis University is a four-year Jesuit-run university, about a 30-minute walk from the stadium on Market Street, takes up multiple blocks of real estate, and is considered to be a rather prestigious university, especially because it's a private one. The buildings, for the most part, are old but excellently maintained, and the faculty is considered to be amongst the best in the country. Now, in the Fallout world, SLU, as it's called for short, has been completely destroyed. Nobody's quite sure why there was so much devastation there, but there's nothing left that anyone would recognize as the college it once was. The destruction covers a lot of the area around it as well, but we'll get to those down the line as we need to. The trip down Market Street's a fairly easy one for the most part. They'll head west down the road past the Opera House, the Municipal Courthouse, which is still standing, by the way. We'll be using it later on in the campaign, and Union Station before heading past the soccer stadium and up the hill towards the university. Now, if you're feeling froggy, this would be a good spot to toss in an encounter. You could use raiders if you want, especially since there's a lot of rubble for folks to be picking through. However, I'd also note that all this rubble is a great place to house a large number of rad roaches or feral ghouls. You decide which encounter, if any, you want to use. Personally, I know I'm going to use one, but I haven't settled on which one I want just yet. You'll find out which one I use when we recap this build and my game recap in a couple of sessions. We'll bring our group up to the rubble of the old library on the SLU campus. Unfortunately for those fans of literature, the library was completely destroyed in the bombing, and the various titles held within were burned to a crisp. However, over the years, groups have cleared out just enough space to spend a night or two within said rubble, and it's turned into a haven for drug users and abusers. That would also mean that at any given time, there are a number of them here standing guard. And since we need to build a few of these out before we proceed, I think we'll pause the build here, but not before we do something we haven't done in a while, and that's level up. So that's a health point, a skill point, and a perk for each of your players. Next week, we'll start the build by building out some NPCs for this encounter, just in case it gets violent. We'll then build out the entirety of the encounter before we recap this week's game from my group. In the meanwhile, I'd ask that you check out our other fine podcast, Role Playing History. This week, we're covering Feng Shui and its creator, Robin Laws. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgingaproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. To pick up a copy of this or any of Modifius's other fine products, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions, 
You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we see what the group can do to find Corinth and Igmon, as well as what Victor can find out about the group that hit the Jessup facility at the Dome. That's next week, folks. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.